0: Oh, hey, Christmas next Sunday—only one week off, right? Exciting, right? Exciting. I mean, you all know in our culture we have so many different things associated with Christmas. You know, for example, Christmas movies. Now, in our family, we have this tradition. Every single Christmas, we watch "While You Were Sleeping," starring Sandra Bullock. We watch this every Christmas. And now, in recent years, I've been trying to convince my family to watch my favorite Christmas movie, "Die Hard." Best Christmas movie, hands down, okay? We can debate about it afterwards, okay? Kidding. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, right? You know that there's so many things associated with Christmas. Christmas movies, Christmas calendars, Christmas toys, Christmas gathering, Christmas music, um, Santa Claus. Yeah, trees inside the house, right? I mean, toys, I mean, shopping. There's so many different things associated with Christmas in our culture. And for those of us who are Christ followers, well we know right we we know that those things are not what christmas is about right we we know that christmas is about the story of the birth of jesus and if you've been around churches you you know the parts of the story right there's there's the angel talking to mary telling her that she's going to be pregnant and then there's joseph with a very pregnant mary on a donkey and they're heading to bethlehem but oh no there's no room in the inn so they end up end up in the stable and then there's jesus in a manger And then the angelic choir singing to a bunch of shepherds. And then the magi, they come and they bring gifts to Jesus. That's the story of Christmas that we are all familiar with. Um, But today, I want to start us off with a part of the Christmas story that most of us are not that familiar with. And we don't talk about very much. That's right. The Christmas story that we're familiar with, that's actually kind of a Disney version. There is a director's cut with a very different ending. Yeah, and i just give you a little warning right now because that ending, it's pretty dark. It's actually kind of unspeakably horrific. But we're going to talk about it because that ending is how the author of the Gospel of Matthew chooses to end the Christmas story because it is one of the key to understanding the story of Christmas. So don't blame me for spoiling Christmas. Blame Matthew. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter two. When they, that's the Magi, okay? When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So, so after the Magi leave, Joseph gets a warning from an angel. So he grabs Jesus and Mary, and they they run off to Egypt. And after a while, the family returns from Egypt. And this is a critical point for Matthew, right? Jesus comes out of Egypt. That's a big deal for, for Matthew. Now, that's weird, right? The story continues. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this is where the Christmas story gets really dark. This is just horrific. Um, The the Herod soldiers, they slaughter baby boys in in the area of Bethlehem. So we have Jesus escaping the killing of baby boys and eventually returning from Egypt. That's how the Christmas story in the book of Matthew actually ends. And we're like, Matthew, seriously? This is how you want to end the Christmas story? I mean, are you crazy? I mean, that's, 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 that's nuts. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. And you're right. It makes no sense to us because we're 21st century Americans. Remember, the Bible's not written to us. Before, for us, Matthew was writing to first century Jews and Jewish Christians. And for them, when they read this, they're like, oh, I get it. You see, for them, when they read about Jesus escaping the massacre of baby boys and that he comes out of Egypt, they would be thinking one thing and one thing only. The story of Christmas is inextricably tied to the story of Exodus. Now, before I explain all that, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors of the teaching team. I want to greet all of you who are here and those of you joining us in Traditions, Gospel Fusion, Downtown, Fitchburg. Big shout-out to those who are streaming online and those listening to the podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, Mei Ping Pingan, and to the Spanish speakers, Esquim Gusto Denas of con nosotros. Now, this Sunday is the last Sunday of this year that we're going to be in the series, uh, Live This Book. And we're taking a two-Sunday break. Next week is Christmas. The week after that is New Year's, and we have Worship Where You Are, where we have online worship. And so we pick up Live This Book on January 8th. So as we head into this two-week break, I want to give us a little a summary, a review of where we've been so far. And so the big idea of this series is that The Bible is a story, a single story. And if we know that story and understand that story, that's critical for for understanding who God is, who we are, and how we're supposed to live. And so what we learn is that this story has seven major movements. God's plan for humanity, the humans rebel, God chooses a people, God's people rebel, Jesus the King, the empowered church, and God's mission accomplished. We began with God's plan for humanity. God creates a physical universe. He creates humans to be his children. We're going to run the world. He's going to empower them to run the world. But the humans rebel. They don't want anything to do with God. And so the world falls apart into sin, brokenness, and death, and violence. And that's the world we live in today. But God doesn't give up. God starts his process, his plan to establish his reign on this earth. And he chooses a people. He creates a people, a nation. And we have been in this movement for the past six weeks. We're spending a lot of time here. Well, why? Because this is our origin story. This is who we are. We learn about who we are through these stories. So here's what we learned so far. The first week we learned that we're people on a mission, that God's people are created to live out God's character, to show the world what God is like, so that people, we can woo the rebellious people back to God. And then for this mission to work, people got to be committed. And so we learned that we as a people, we are people in a covenant relationship with God, a committed partnership with God. If we're partners, then we talk to God as partners. And so we learned that we are people of prayer, not just annual prayer, but partnership prayers in which we talk about what we're doing together in this world. And then foundational to the people of God, we need to trust God's promises. We need to have faith that God will do what he says. And as the people of God begin to live out his character, some of that comes across as this idea of wisdom, this this desire and this ability to create shalom, to create wholeness and healing in all our different spheres of life. And then finally last week, Pastor Chris talked about the maturing process of God's people. We're getting to the point where we become a people who sacrifice our interest for the sake of others. So, mission, covenant, prayer, faith, wisdom, and self-sacrifice. Today, we're going to continue and look at another foundational trait of the people of God. Today, we're going to learn that we are a people who are saved. Now, I use that word saved very intentionally. Saved or salvation, those are kind of religious words, right? And when I say them in a church or in various churches, People, different, very very specific concepts come to mind, right? In many churches today, when you say saved or salvation, you're thinking, oh, we're talking about being saved from hell. We're being saved from being punished for our sins, okay? Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I said, I said this. I said that when you read the Bible as a story, it has a way of shifting, has a way of changing things that we are familiar with. So today... We're gonna read the Bible as a story and see how that shifts this big idea called salvation. And okay? we're gonna see how that changes that. And to do that, we're gonna look at a story in the Bible that defines salvation. We're gonna look at the story of Exodus. All right, uh, but before I jump into that, I just wanna give a big shout out to Black Hawk Bible study because those of you who are part of that, you know you have been in the book of Exodus since this fall and uh, you're gonna continue in the spring Um, And I've heard great things about this Bible study, and um, the material, I've seen it, it's fantastic. So it's not too late to register. You can still jump into Blackout Bible study. All right. Now, end of commercial. (laughs) Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and in the first 15 chapters of this book, it tells the story of Exodus. So not confusing at all, right? Okay. Um, Now, this story is one of the most dramatic stories in the Bible. And not surprisingly, Hollywood's all over it, okay? So I want to do a little quick survey here, all right? So raise your hand, okay? Raise your hand if you've seen uh, this movie, Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. Hands up. Oh, we have a lot. We have quite a few here. Okay, this is 1956, okay? Now, raise your your hand if you've seen the 1998 Prince of Egypt, DreamWorks animated musical. Oh, we have a lot of those too. Okay, all right. Now, the most recent one is 2014, Exodus, Gods and Kings, a Ridley Scott epic action-adventure. Anybody seen those? Whoa, okay, wow, like two or three. Okay, good. All right, not many people watch this one. Okay, not very popular. All right, so if you have seen one of these movies, okay, and you actually remember the plot, then you kind of know the story of Exodus, kind of, okay. But if you haven't, or it's kind of gone like hazy, or you know, you just haven't read, you don't know anything about this, I want to give you the gist of the story of Exodus. It goes like this God's people face oppression in Egypt. Um, So the past two weeks, we've been talking about Joseph and Judah, right? These two are brothers. They're in the family. This is the descendants of Abraham. They're the covenant family of, of God's people. And Joseph goes to Egypt. He becomes powerful, and he invites his family to go to live with him in Egypt during this time of famine. And they stay there. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. And the book of Exodus picks up hundreds of years later. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And here we're confronted with one of the foundational sins of our world, ethnocentrism. Right? The Egyptians, they're looking at the Israelites. Now, the Israelites have been here for hundreds of years in their land but they see them as foreigners. They see them as outsiders, and they question their loyalty. If, if we get people attacking us, oh no, these Israelites will fight on their side, and they will leave. So do you see what the Egyptians want? The Egyptians want two things. One, they want the Israelites to stay because they can exploit them as cheap labor. And number two, we want to control their population. If there's too many of them, they're kind of become a threat to us. They're kind of dangerous. So keep them here, but keep the numbers at a proper level. So how do you do population control in the ancient world? Two-part plan. Part one. The Egyptians made the Israelite lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Plan number one is simple, Work them to death. Work them until they get sick, work them until they die. That controls population. Part two of the plan. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, all the Egyptians. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This plan is brutal. It is gruesome. They throw only baby boys in the river because this is a patriarchal society. Boys grow up to be leaders, to be soldiers, to be, to be to be politicians. They're the ones who can actually lead a rebellion. So get rid of the boys, and you have no problem with this, this group of people. Now I want you to read these verses for two reasons. Number one, bells should be going off. Oh yeah, the killing of baby boys. That's right. The Christmas story, right? Book of Matthew, Jesus. Oh yeah. The second reason I want you to see this is because the, the, the story of Exodus has a lot to do with God's judgment of the Egyptians. And um, and so I want to make sure you understand why God is so angry. The Egyptians, they, they take a group of foreigners coming to the land who are economic refugees. They look at them, and then they, they, they exploit them as cheap labor. And then they try to control their population by working them to death and by throwing their children into the Nile River. All right, let's just make this really clear. Egypt is a country that drowns infants as state policy. Imagine what it's like to walk by the Nile River on a daily basis. I hate, being, I hate being so graphic. But 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 here's the thing: every time I teach exodus, I get people coming up to me and say, man, why is God so mad you know so mean to the Egyptians? And I'm like, are you serious? The story of Exodus starts with brutality. It starts with inhumanity. It starts with cruelty. And then God shows up. At this point, we're introduced to a, a, a character, one of the most important characters in the Old Testament. His name is Moses. And we actually get the story of his birth, right? That he survives drowning in the Nile River because the daughter of Pharaoh pulls him out of the river, and raises him as her son. Miraculous. And then when he grows up, he tries to free his people from oppression by killing one of their oppressors. Well, that doesn't go anywhere. And so he runs off into the wilderness and and stays there until he turns 80. And then God calls him and says, Hey, Moses, get my people out of Egypt. So Moses is a character who escapes the killing of the baby boys and leads God's people out of Egypt. Are you making the connection, right? What is Matthew doing in the Christmas story? Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is going to be the one who leads his people out of oppression. Now, how will Moses do that? How will Moses lead his people out? He doesn't have an army. Well, no, really, the plan is kind of simple. Moses threatens Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, look, if you don't let my people go, bad things are going to happen to your country. Right? Nice little country you got there. Shame if something happened to it. Right. So this is what happens. God unleashes nine plagues on the Egyptian, natural or unnatural disasters. And these plagues, they wipe out the Egyptian economy. Why? Because the Egyptian economy is built on the backs of exploited labor of the ancient Israelites. Unfortunately for the Egyptians, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And so we move on to the 10th plague. And this one is brutal. The 10th plague is the killing of the firstborn of every single Egyptian family. Every single Egyptian family, the firstborn dies. Absolutely brutal. Why? Why? This is God's judgment for the generations of the massacre of Israelite children. This is God's judgment. At the same time, God also established something called the Feast of Passover. And Passover and the 10th plague, they are integrally tied together. Okay? So it works like this. On the day of that 10th plague, the, the ancient Israelites, they're, they're the people of God, they're called to kill the Passover lamb and they're, they're called to take the blood. Of the lamb, and they call it to smear it on the doorframe of their house. Okay, and then they eat the Passover lamb, and that night at midnight, as God is now executing judgment, as He's moving through Egypt, killing the firstborn of every family, He sees the blood on the doorframe of a house, and He passes over that house. And that's why it's called the Passover. Passing over that. Remember that, okay? That's important. So with all this death in, the, in, in Egypt, Pharaoh's had enough. He tells the people they can go. And so the people, they, 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 they take off and they move into the wilderness. And after they've been gone for a little bit, he, Pharaoh changes his mind and he gets into his chariot. He leads a massive Egyptian chariot army and they go and chase down the Israelites. And now we get to now the culminating act of God's salvation. As the chariots are charging down the people, the people are next to this, this body of water, the water separates forming walls, now there's dry ground. And God's people crosses through that dry ground into safety. And as the Egyptian chariots chase down after them, they get into that wet area. Their wheels get tied up in the mud and they can't move. They're stuck. And as God's people clear out, the water closes in and wipes out the vanguard of the Egyptian army. The people are safe. The people go from there to Mount Sinai, where they learn about who God is, and then they enter into the promised land to be the people of God, to be God's kingdom. That is the story of Exodus, in in Exodus chapters 1 through 15. And that is the story that defines salvation in the Bible. There is a summary statement at the end of the story in Exodus chapter 14, and it reads like this. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day, Yahweh, when you see the word LORD in all caps, that marks God's personal name, Yahweh. Um, the day Yahweh saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Yahweh saves, Yahweh hoshea, the verb there, Hoshia in Hebrew. This is the very first time this verb shows up in the Bible with Yahweh or God as the subject. This is the first time in the Bible in the story where God saves anyone or saves anything. This is it. God saves. Yahweh saves. This is the story that defines salvation in the Bible. And it's hard to communicate how important this story is to the rest of the Bible. I mean, Old Testament writers, whenever they talk about who who God is, they talk about the story. Whenever they talk about who the people of God are, they, they talk about this story. Whenever they talk about God as Savior, they talk about the story. They are really excited about the story. And then 1,500 years later, after Moses, Jesus comes along. And New Testament writers, writing about Jesus, they use the story of Exodus to explain Jesus. In fact, Jesus uses the story of Exodus to explain Jesus. Check out Mark 14. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, if you know your story in Mark chapter 14, this is the night before Jesus dies on the cross. This is it. This is the night. And uh, it's it's Passover. This is the night when, this is 1,500 years later, Jews all around the world They gather to eat the Passover. They kill the Passover lamb. They prepare the meal. And during the meal, they retell the story, the one we just read. They retell the story of how God delivered his people out of Egypt, out of oppression. And in the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus does this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. to them. What is Jesus doing? In the middle of the Passover feast, where everybody's eating the Passover lamb, where they're retelling the story of God's salvation, of God's people out of Egypt, Jesus says, eat my body and drink my blood. What is Jesus saying? This is really unmistakable. Jesus is saying, I am the new Passover lamb. And tomorrow when I die on the cross, that is going to be a new act of exodus. That is going to be a new act of salvation where God is going to deliver his people out of oppression and into freedom. Jesus as the new Passover lamb. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they make this point by the way they tell their story. But if you like, you want to really direct, really spelled out, Paul does it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Yeah, Paul makes it very clear. Jesus Uses the story of Exodus to explain the salvation that he brings. He says, I am the new Passover Lamb. Whatever I'm doing is the new Exodus. So, what exactly then is salvation in the Bible? Let's spell it out, okay? Let's talk about what is salvation in the Bible. Salvation, let's start with, let's start with um, let's start with the story of Exodus. Okay, so we have the story of Exodus here. Right? Um, for those of you on the, uh, listening to the podcast, what I have is a map of the Middle East. Here is Egypt. This is the place of inhumanity. This is the place of cruelty. This is the place where life has no meaning. Your life is used up or it's tossed into the river. What is salvation in the story of Exodus? That's salvation. Salvation means to leave, okay? You got to get out you leave Egypt, you go to Mount Sinai, where you learn about what it means to be God's people. And we're going to talk about that on January 8th. And then you go into the freedom of the promised land, of God's people, of the kingdom of God. How is this done? How does the salvation happen? Well, God's power. There is judgment on Egypt, right? There's all these plagues on Egypt that let the people go free. But there is that one moment of faith. You guys remember the story of Passover. There is that one moment of faith where where God says to his people, here's what you must do. You must kill the Passover lamb and you must put the blood on the doorframe. That's kind of weird, right? Smearing lamb blood on doorframes. That's kind of a weird thing to do. Yeah, even in the ancient world. They do it. Why? It's an act of faith. I trust by doing this, God's judgment will pass over us, and I trust that his power will lead us out of this place of oppression. It's an act of faith. That is salvation in the story of Exodus. Okay. So what does salvation look like in the new Exodus? What does salvation look like? The the one that Jesus talks about, that Jesus brings. Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that we're no longer talking about physical geography. We're not leaving a particular country to run to another place, right? Because the New Testament teaches us that the entire world is under oppression. The entire world is under the rule of the rebellious spiritual beings. Humans serve them. There's no way out. There's no way you can go to escape. It's all around us. It's systemic. It's external. It's also internal. We are under the thumbs of these rebellious spiritual beings. We are broken people living in a broken world. We want the wrong things, and we want them the wrong way, and we can't get out. And so, salvation in the New Testament is about spiritual geography, right? Before Jesus, every one of us, we're here in the kingdom of sin and death, and we're under the power and under the dominion of the power of sin and death. And then Jesus comes along, and he says, there needs to be a new exodus. There needs to be a new act of salvation. And Jesus says, what I'm doing on the cross, that's the new Passover lamb. And when people here, by faith, accept Jesus, we join Jesus on the cross, and now we die to this kingdom and as Jesus comes to life and resurrects, we resurrect with him in the kingdom of God. This is salvation in the New Testament. This is the salvation that Jesus brings. This is the new Exodus. Now, I, I know you have all kinds of questions at this point. Right? Some of you are thinking, well, wait, wait, wait. If, if we're like saved out of you know, the kingdom of sin and death, aren't we in heaven somewhere? How come we're still here in this world? Okay, great question, right? And that's because, of course, remember the mission. God's people saved out of same sin and death, but we stay in this physical world. We moved spiritually, but we did not move physically. Why? Because we have a job here. We have a mission here. We're here to show the world what, what being with God is like, to draw the world to him, so we can't leave. And instead, what we're looking for is not leaving. What we're looking for is God returning, Jesus returning to this earth and establishing his reign over this whole world. That's what we're looking for. Now, now, now some of you have other questions. You're, You're asking, well, okay, now, I've always been taught that salvation has to do with being saved from hell, from the punishment of my sins. Is that still true? Yes. Remember, in the story of Exodus, there is judgment. There is judgment on this kingdom of sin and death. That judgment is coming. All all the rebellious spiritual powers and the people who follow them will face God's judgment. But those of us who follow Jesus, we're no longer there. So we are spared from the judgment. That's absolutely true. But here's the important thing, okay? Salvation is not primarily about being spared from judgment. It is true that we are spared from judgment. But that is not the main point of salvation. The main point of salvation is that we are freed from the power of sin and death, and we enjoy freedom and the glorious life inside the kingdom of God as God's children. That's salvation. We're being saved out of this to that. That's a good thing. And now some of you are listening to all this, and you're like, Charles, I don't feel free from sin at all. Not one bit. I feel like I can't stop. So what are you talking about, Charles? I follow Jesus. I'm not freed from my sins. So let me just make this really clear, okay? I hope this will help. The moment somebody is saved, the moment somebody comes through here, moves over here, okay, this person's gone. Here's what changed. okay? This person now has a relationship with God that's reconciled. Children of God. This person now has the Holy Spirit, but everything else about that person is still the same as before. Our desires, our habits, our interests, our goals, our visions, the way we respond to things, they're all the same as the person who was here. And this person here is used to listening to the spiritual powers of this world. And I got to tell you right now, okay, for those of us who are Christ followers, there's a lot of people here. They're on this side, but they've got their ears going like this, and they're listening. We can't help ourselves. We're used to it. We're used to being influenced and listening, influenced by this world, the culture, the values of this world. And when we cross over, we still do it, and we hang out here. And what God wants is to say, hey, walk away. Walk that way. You have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been set free. So walk away. Where are you on this map? Ask my question for you. Where are you on this map? Now, for some of you who are listening or watching or here, you're like, I'm not a Christ follower. And based on this map, Charles, you're saying I'm, I'm a slave and I'm, I'm trapped in the kingdom of sin and death. I don't feel trapped. I, I, I'm free. I do whatever I want. And if, you, if those of you here, I, here's what I want to say to you. First, welcome to Blackout Church. We're so glad you're here. We're glad you're here. We invite you to come and ask questions and, and talk and listen and, and, and figure this thing out with alongside us. But we're going to tell you ahead of time, okay? Here's what we believe. We believe that we are in a world that is broken beyond what we can fix. We humans cannot fix this world. This world is broken, rotten, inside out. And it's not just the world. We believe that about us. We cannot free ourselves from our egotism, from our selfishness, from our anger, from our pride, from our jealousy, from our passivity, from our anxiety. We can't do it. And so what we hope for is that one day you'll get to the point where you will say to God, God, I want you to change me. And I want to join you in changing the world. That's what we hope. Now, some of you, you're right here. You're, you're saved. You're, you're, you're saved, but not all the way. You see that? Right? You haven't moved over here. And one of the biggest problems is you've been told that oh, sin will always have power over you. You can't change, you cannot be transformed. That's what you're thinking. That's what you're feeling because you try. It's like, I can't do this. And sometimes you just give up trying. That's one of the biggest lies from the kingdom of sin and death. They're telling you, you can't change. You cannot be transformed. The first thing you need to hear is, yes, you can. You have been set free by the blood of the Passover lamb. It's time to go. Now, some of you, you're ready to move. You're like, how do I walk this way? How do I live a life that is oriented toward God? And so oriented, how, do I, how do I live a life that is no longer paying attention to the values and the messages of this world, but really attentive to the Holy Spirit? How do I live like that? I just got to tell you, I have a 35-minute sermon. <laughs> I can't do all that, but I want to tell you right now, two weeks, worship where you are, okay? When you do online worship, Pastor Tiffany Malloy is going to talk about this. She's going to talk about how to live a life that is moving toward being oriented to God. So don't miss that one. Don't miss worship where you are. So instead, I want to, uh, well, you notice I started my talk by uh, looking at the ending of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I'm going to end my talk by looking at the beginning. This is the Christmas story in the book of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Christmas is about salvation. And notice, notice, it's not saving his people from the Romans or or the Egyptians. No, it's saving people from their sins. And remember what we learned today. It's not about saving them from the punishment or the consequence of their sins. No, it's saving God's people from the domination, the oppression, the control of their sins. That there is true freedom in life of Christ and in the kingdom of God. And you notice this salvation is rooted in the name of Jesus. I want, I want to do this at the very end because I want you to remember this. This is so important. Because we always talk about the name of Jesus. Okay? Name of Jesus is about salvation. How so? I want you to remember this, okay? I want you to remember this. This is the etymology of Jesus. Jesus is English is a transliteration of the Greek Jesus which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, name Yahoshua okay that's a Hebrew name Yahoshua so where does Yehoshua come from it's a combination of two words Yahweh Hoshia Yahweh Hoshia becomes Yahoshua then becomes Jesus becomes Jesus Yahweh Hoshia means Yahweh saves. Does that ring a bell? Yahweh Hoshia. Yeah. Right back in Exodus chapter 14. The very first time these two words show up together. Okay? This is the story of Exodus, the ending of Exodus, where God shows up and saves the people out of oppression into freedom. Yahweh saves right here. The name of Jesus, the the etymology of the name of Jesus shows up. Jesus is Yahweh saves. It is a story of Exodus. It's a story of new Exodus. It's a story of new freedom, new salvation, new Passover lamb. Salvation is the reason for the season. Do you understand that? We are people who have been saved out of oppression to sin and death and into a life of freedom, the glorious freedom being the children of God in the kingdom of God. And we get to live differently. We get to live out our salvation. That's what we celebrate Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful. We celebrate Christmas. I know the culture tells us to celebrate Christmas all kinds of different ways, but we know the true reason. We know the true reason we celebrate Christmas is because you do not let us go and you do not let us languish in a place of sin and death and, and, and oppression, but you get us out. And now we move from oppression to freedom. From from under the, the thumb of these rebellious spiritual beings into a loving relationship with God the Father and, and, and have the Holy Spirit with us. And we're so grateful for this new life. And what we want to do, Father, is we want to live out this life. Help us to live out what it means to be saved. In Jesus' name we pray.